Miss Macintosh, my darling, chapter 65, part 5. I have put away childish things, Mr. Bonebreaker often said to his audience under the streetlight. I have put away bicycles, billiards, card playing, smoking, drinking, the things of my childhood. I have triumphed over death, and oh, my friends, it is a wonderful feeling, and it is free for all, free as the air you breathe. Let the rain fall on me as on other men, and let the fire burn. Mine is a heavenly pavilion. Friends, join with me that all may live. All may live under this great canopy of God. Shall I be guilty of breach of promise? Shall the drunkard drink again in stealth? Rejoice, thou baron. The end of the world is at hand, like a shadow running backward. But though he thought that he had put away childish things, and that he had found a glorious liberty from death, there was a child in Mr. Bonebreaker as in, the, as in us all, according to Miss Mackintosh. A child, a human frailty. He could not bear to face the truth that he was poor. He was poor as Tobit's dog. He was always dreaming of that heavenly crown, that golden raiment. Miss Mackintosh hoped that she had long ago overcome the child in herself, that she had needed not one grain of illusion such as Mr. Brown Bonebreaker had eaten when she gave up when he gave up his other appetites. She hoped that she had always been perfectly honest. This time passed and they were not yet married. God, said Miss Mackintosh, had scattered the hoarfrost over her Chicago faces, and it was almost spring. If their marriage was put off much longer, all creation would be as dust and ashes and old rags in that very day. Nonetheless, Mr. Bonebreaker had his more hopeful moments when he was willing to acknowledge that the world might last until the spring, after all. He would lean his wild head into any and every baby carriage, gooing and gawing, making a face that was intended to be funny. What could Miss Mackintosh do to bring climax to their relationship? She did not like continual uncertainty. She had spent a good deal of money purchasing the mutilated crockery, the cups and saucers. A constant exposure to the elements was, moreover, not to her liking, for she had not yet acquired her sea boots or her present health. Though she had no feminine beauty, such as Mr. Bonebreaker unseemingly attributed to her, there were consolations she could have named, one of her sobriety, one of her crown of patience, one of her honesty which could not be clouded, overclouded. She had set no snares of deceit to catch a man, she had no golden meshes or webs, no crowns of gold. What of her supreme tact in the midst of her temporal losses, what of her courage? There was also her lack of vanity. Her lack of vanity, which she had prided herself on, Miss Mackintosh recollected. Her eyes swam with the light of recollection. Her bald head lolled forward between her raised shoulders like a great pale fruit. Sometimes, she said, I did think he was a mad hair tonic salesman, determined not to sell his product. He would talk so much about baldness, looking at me, and yet he could not have known my state. God loved, he said, baldness above all things, but if you tell all people that their heads are to be a baldness, that they have not a chance, how shall you sell your product, which is a hair tonic? She might have been addressing him, not me, in a world where, there being no time, all shimmers can communicate with each other. Her face, which she withdrew into the shadows, wore a look of ineffable distance. Her head, seen from the back as I circled around it, sloped sharply downward like a precipice. It had hardly any roundness, hardly any depth. She was for a time quiescent, but then she took up once again where she had left off. She mended in the shadow her black gloves. She found in a tiny box of buttons and sequins a tiny seed-pearl button which she sewed on. And God forgive me for this present vanity, she said, and yet may I not hope what every woman hopes? There is surely a man somewhere in every woman's life. Um, he was a mad to hair tonic salesman, she replied gruffly. Nothing else. It's my mistake, believing in him. 
She had believed that he understood all the earth's sadness, or almost all, but his compassion, it was to be seen, was limited. When she put him to a simple test. It was not that she wanted to test him, but that it had to be done for his sake. She was tired, too, of his bellowing through the trumpet that all people would be bald as the bald rock when God came. She was tired of the walking back and forth to no purpose. Perhaps she was tired of his promise of the goods that would not be delivered. It had to be done. She had to show him. In the light, her baldness, her inscrutable baldness, her sorrow, which had always been, which would always be, whether anyone saw it or not, what better than to show it to the man she might marry on the night before their marriage night? Only out of consideration to others had she covered her head, not out of consideration to herself. But he must see it. He, had he looked at her directly, should have seen anyhow that she had no eyebrows, no eyelashes, not even a thin line of hair above her lips, should have been prepared. But he had not seen, and gave no signs of quieting down, even after the date of their marriage was firmly set. She believed it must have been the day he figured would be the day after the world would end, for he had seemed so cheerful about it. The tip of his nose had reddened in the sharper and sharper Chicago winds. His state of mind was, indeed, like that state of perpetual intoxication which never betrays itself. He danced his mad dervish on every street corner, beseeching his straggling listeners to repent, to lay down their bodies and walk in Christ's way, and let the feet of others walk over them, for the end was at hand here in old Chicago. Instead of sweet smell, he was always saying there would be stink in Chicago on that last day. Instead of a girdle, there would be a rent. Instead of a well-set hair... Instead of well-set hair, there would be a baldness. Life is never in accordance with what we think it is. However, it bears unthought-of surprises, and there was one which Miss McIntosh had in store for Mr. Bonebreaker, who thought he had seen everything. She invited him to her hotel room on a pretext that he must see the mutilated crockery. He was surprised by the luxury of her surroundings, surprised by the old Masonic banners, the crumbling lions, Surprised that she should live on the top floor, which was a long way to descend, for how should she escape in case of fire? And how should the fire engine hose reach up to her, and how should God save her? But she had hoped, oh, how she had hoped, that he would not be surprised when she stepped forth before him without her wig on, and with her head so bald. She had thought of winding a winding sheet around her, of showing only her head, but that would not do, for she must step forth naked as the day she was born, so that he might see her, and even more naked than the day she was born, for she had lost a breast, and she was wounded. He himself had often said, quoting the Bible, that the wife should stand forth before her husband, not as one who wears fine ornaments or braids gold threads into her hair, but as the inner man revealed. She obeyed him. She stepped forth suddenly from behind a curtain, herself as she was, neither fair nor dark, and she stood under an electric light bulb. He was like a crazy, snared bird when he first when he saw her. A crazy bird, waving his long arms, his long feet. She had been mistaken about his stamina. He turned and turned in all directions. True, he could not bear the truth when he saw the truth revealed. But who can, said Miss McIntosh, and not even she could bear it. Miss McIntosh, without her dark wig on, without her clothes, her fist clutched tightly over the breastbone where the breast was missing, her fist clutched as if to ward off a blow. She had been compelled to lean against the wall for support. Her eyes closed, for she could not bear to see his lifted eyebrows and look of wild astonishment, which she knew so well, could not bear that it should be directed against her, alone, denuded, shining, bare, but real. If he had been compassionate, filled with that compassion with which he had considered her drunkenness, which was not hers, she should have heard his voice, loud and triumphing. He would have rushed forward and declared that whatever had happened in her mother's womb, among the still waters, he would love her in the tomb, for the beginning was like the end, and she was beautiful as snow. He did not do so. She heard instead his long groan of astonishment, and then a rustle as of some departing spirit, perhaps her own. 
He acted as embarrassed as if he'd gotten into the wrong room, but it was not the wrong room, and it was not even the wrong hotel. She had counted too much in a sudden or slow understanding that compassion, which had already accepted her with her barren breast, her barren heart, why should he have accepted her barren head? He turned. He ran, leaving, in his great excitement, his long black umbrella behind him on her bed. And Bible literature fell out of his coat as he fled, nearly catching his coattails in the door when he slammed it, causing the entire building to shake. She heard his footsteps going down three flights of stairs until the sound of his footsteps disappeared, almost to it seemed with the, st- with the stairs themselves. And then he was skeltering, bareheaded, without his umbrella, among great falling hailstones, exactly as if it were, after all, creation's end. A clock in a tower struck nine. By and by, she picked up the scattered Bible literature from the floor, reading each leaf with a slow, stern smile. You, too, can be saved, she read. God loves the shorn lamb. You, too, can be washed as white as the new-fallen snow. See Chicago and live for he had mixed up with his Bible literature some pamphlets of the Chamber of Commerce, and the messages were not the same. We are on the verge of a new development, she read. Chicago will roll back the waters. The mayor will sweep the city clean with his broom. The new skyscrapers will dwarf the old skyscrapers. But Miss McIntosh had not been much impressed, naturally, by all this prospect of new buildings, and she could not help wondering how Mr. Bonebreaker would get along without his umbrella. What would he do without his umbrella when creation ended at last? Would he call for it before that date? Would he return and say, Pardon me, I forgot my umbrella, my heavenly canopy, little sister who hath no breast, and let us walk again beneath the shade, and may God's love protect us from the falling rain. Would she say, Pardon me, I forgot my wig? Ah, she knew he would not return, for he had plucked this umbrella from a dead man. He was a scavenger, and he might find another umbrella. He might even find another dead man. Never again would she walk with Mr. Bonebreaker under that pleasant shade, the raindrops falling, spinning like a curtain around her. Because he had carried this great pavilion over her, she had misunderstood his intentions, for she had supposed they were as good as engaged and would be married. But she had been deceived. She had wanted nothing to remind her of him, and yet, as he had left us this umbrella, might she not keep it to remind her of herself? Would he not get another umbrella which would do just as well, and would he not find some greater star than either the Jews or herself, who was lost, unutterably lost? Surely she was no great fish for any man to catch. She had not been caught. She had no tear for the gospel salesman. She put him out of her mind and out of her heart just at that moment. She shed for herself not a single sniveling tear. She saw him once again, his black coat tails flapping, for he was running along as usual, but he seemed shorn of glory without his long black umbrella so stout, so durable, which she was carrying on a sunny day in old Chicago. Being an honest woman, she had wanted to return it to him along with his watch, these souvenirs of a lost romance. A watch to signify that she had never entered time or had left it was leaving it, but if she had confronted him, if she had not turned a sudden corner to avoid meeting him face to face again, she knew so well that he, with his unseen eyes too brilliant for this world, would have tried to save her soul again, and all their history would have been repeated, every blow. Perhaps there would be every blow but one. Poor sister. Was she a fallen woman, grievously afflicted, beset by temptations like bumblebees, each day growing weaker, and what was the nature of her past? She saw Mr. Bonebreaker not once again, but when last seen, when last heard of, he was pushing a rusted baby carriage along the windy lake front on a sunny day in old Chicago, for he had married, quite suddenly it was said, a foreign young girl, in order to give her child a name, the name of Mr. Bonebreaker, that there might be, no doubt, a future contender with the Habsburgs, Medicis, Bourbons, Navarras,
future claimant for the Swedish throne. So Mr. Bonebreaker believed in the future after all, or in the past. Someone else now must save the souls of men and women in Chicago, or prepare for the trumpet sound, skies opening and all thrones appearing, and all crowns are almost all. For all Miss Mackintosh knew, this was the beginning of the end of Mr. Bonebreaker, who, after all, was caught in a trap greater than any he had set, a circumstance greater than any he had perceived, greater than the abyss toward which creation was headed. He had done the one thing she had not foreseen, had never dreamed of as possible. 